So, spiritual gifts is our subject, right? We figured that one out by the time you got through chapter 14, right? So, as we led up to uh, 1 Corinthians 12, as a quick review, go back in your mind in what we did last week. I know that's pretty tough to do, though, right? Uh, We covered chapter 11, and do you remember what the issue was in chapter 11? There was actually two of them, two problems that were going on in this church. Right, women that were contentious, right? And in that, it's very interesting that, that Paul, um, as, he, as he attacks that question to answer it for these uh, believers, this has really been, I think, a benefit, but also, sadly, very badly interpreted in many cases. And therefore, it can be used against women in some congregations and, and quite honestly, just through some generations. They, we have periods of generations when I think that um, there was a, more of a lording over women and they would use verses like we see in Corinthians and also, or in 11, but also in um, uh, 14, right? So we have the advantage in our study to actually look at it in its proper context, to take the book on the whole, look at it from beginning to end, and see how it fits in the flow of thought. And therefore, the context, again, must rule for interpretation. And if you handle it in that way, I do think that the outcome is, what did you really learn about the situation with the women not covering their head? What did you learn about that? What did you see from it? What was Paul's emphasis in uh, his answer to them? Okay, that there should be an authority. Now, why is there to be an authority over the head of a woman when she's praying and prophesying in the church? Okay, it's again, it's a, it's a, it's the concept of that there's orderliness, right, and. Um, one of the other things is the idea of submissiveness, which is such a dirty word in some people's minds, which is really sad, because submissiveness to God's authority should never be seen as a negative. God is the authority, and God does set the program in place. He's designed this, the genders to be distinct and have distinct roles, which is what we talked about last week. And therefore, all he's really saying in that chapter 11 is that men and women both need to understand that they have a, one authority over them, and that's God himself. And then secondarily, then there is an order of um, designed work for each gender, and to show God respect in the way that you handle yourself within congregational worship is important. And when they don't, when we, when we tend to buck that system, when we tend to say that I don't like that rule that women have an authority over them in that the husband is to be the one who is the spiritual lead and that there are designed roles within the congregation itself for men and women that are distinct. And somehow we see that as a negative. But did the text itself actually address that? Was there something in chapter 11 that actually brought us to an equalizing place? Do you remember? Go back to chapter 11. Open your text. 
there you go. But men and women are not independent of one another. And so in the, in the explanation as to how to handle these women who are being contentious, he, he kind of um, addresses the fact that, first of all, you should simply do what's proper, right? Which is a decency thing. It's a, um, it's a good manners kind of a thing almost. But it's also a submissiveness to God thing. It's about recognizing that God is the, the designer of this. But secondly, he's, he's saying you ought to have a symbol of authority over her is not to say because she's less than, because she's not. He just said they're created in, in, to be not independent of one another, but basically in equal standing before God. And as for the woman, she originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate where? from God. So he, the equalizer statements are in there, but for whatever reason, when, when we read through this, we tend to skip that part and just focus on the part that sounds negative and people get all up in arms about it. So now that you've seen it in its full context, I, I also sent you um, in the charts last week the five reasons that Paul addresses and he does this almost through an apologetic way but he kind of states to them these are the reasons why a woman should cover her head now is that a mandate for women to always have to cover their head in churches no it's not he is simply saying in this issue about which we are talking about today where you all are having an issue with this you're having a problem with this and there are some women who are rising up to be contentious, and he uses that word contentious, I think um, as it's a, it's a, uh, it's kind of a rebuking word, but it's, and it's also to clarify what the real problem is, the real heart of the problem here is the contentiousness. But Paul gives five reasons. The first one is he says that God has an ordained, um, God is the ordained headship. He is the one that set the order. So that's number one. Why should you do it? Because number one, God has designed the order. Number two, because of creation's order, it validates that, that God is at the head, man came for, uh, uh, as the first created being, and women second. So that also is a confirmation to, for you and I to say, okay, yeah, God is, for, first of all, God is our creator, so I should submit. Number two, God created me under the man, so okay, I should submit just by virtue of that fact. Then he says about the angels, which was the tricky one. We don't know positively what the reference is because he doesn't expand on it. But we did discuss a couple of possibilities of, you know, why were the angels mentioned there um, as an example of what happens to those who are contentious, <laughs> those who rebel against the authority and the placement you know, God placed, created the angels and placed them in his created design where he wanted them, right? Just as we are going to speak about concerning spiritual gifts, God created the angels and he placed them. Well, then there was a rebellion of some angels, right? And so the example of what happened to those rebellious angels may be what he's mentioning there as an example to what could happen. So it's just one thought. The other one was long hair for women. It, because it's a distinction that God gave, and it, um, he's, all he's doing is taking something in the, the commonly known realm of life that on the whole, women's hair is longer, and that is a distinction. It, it, even it's, it's 
in all cultures, even to this very day around the world. Although some of us have short hair, but still long hair is the distinction of a, of a man and a woman. And so he says, for that reason, that's uh, just kind of an external symbolic remembrance that we are created to have a covering. Okay, so he used that as an example. And then the other one was uh, to do what was proper in all the churches. And what was going on in the churches uh, with these women being contentious was what? What was happening because of their contentiousness? Division. There was, it was causing chaos and disruption, right? And what do you think concerning that kind of uh, behavior, how does that magnify the love of God. How does that, no, how does that propel the gospel message? It doesn't. If others were to come in and into your church congregation as visitors and observe this kind of contentiousness going on, how would that further them to want to come into faith, right? So all these things were a problem. So those were just a few things. So that was back in chapter 11. So what we saw right away in the first half of 11 was there was some disorder going on in the church. Church was not being practiced correctly at this point. What about the next subject? What was it? The Lord's Supper. Now, what was the problem with how they were handling the Lord's Supper? It was, it was, a, it was, actually, <laughs> right. So what had happened to the Lord's Supper itself as an ordinance? It had lost its meaning, right? They were doing it. Have we any um, idea or concept of, of uh, a practice that we do losing its real meaning? You know, do we do things sometimes in our churches and we're like, well, yeah, we have always done it that way. Why do you do that? Uh, I don't know, but we just always have, right? And so that apparently, it, it, uh, shockingly, that early in the birth of a church, I mean, you were talking first century uh, church growth, and yet they had already fallen into a pattern where they had lost their, their perspective and understanding of why they were taking that Lord's Supper. The purpose of it was not to feed you. It was not to allow you to have wine to drink or bread to eat but rather what was the purpose. And then Paul goes through and explains what was passed down to him, right, concerning that. So, the so again, now we have a secondary problem in church um, functionality. This is what was going on in the functioning of the church at that time. And so when you look at your uh, at-a-glance chart and you see your segment divisions, it's kind of come to my attention at this point that not only is 11 and 12, or 11 rather, a dis disorder in the church assembly, but you can actually include all the way through 14 because of the subject matter that we're looking at now. Would you say that's true? In, uh, in t uh, 12 to 14, what is the major subject? Spiritual gifts. Okay, thank you. Someone did their homework. Okay, so spiritual gifts is the... 
I know you talked to me. Yes, very good. Okay, so we did, so we're in the subject of spiritual gifts, but concerning spiritual gifts, why is this being addressed? Disorder in the church. So what I found for me that I did is I went back and I kind of grouped 11 through 14 as one segment division, even though there are three subjects and five chapters, you know, we have one chapter, or four, what, 11, 12, 13, it's four chapters. One chapter covers two, two problems in the, in the assembly, the, how the assembly is coming together in the church. And then the next one, which is uh, 12, 13, and 14, it's one subject, but again, it's all about the disorder that's going on. But I love the way it is broken down, and we're going to get to look at that a little bit more carefully today, is how he parses this through, and quite honestly, Again, we're going to go back to the fundamental cure that we have seen going on since chapter 8. In chapter 8, what is the, the undergirding message behind the problem that they were having? In, in that case, they were uh, exercising their liberty in faith, liberty in Christ. And in doing so, talked about the eating of uh, meat that, or meat that had been sacrificed to idols, right? So again, another problem in the church. Now, this is not necessarily talking about in the church assembly, though. So that's why I distinguished that segment division in its own in eight to ten, because that's talking about how what how do they handle the issue of meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and what did he say about that in eight, nine, and ten? We, that the, un, the, the bottom line is love must edify and however you handle whatever the issue is that comes up in your life. So it doesn't necessarily have to be meat sacrificed to uh, idols, right? It could be a lot. Of, can you think of any other subjects that might come up that cause other people um, to struggle as they're observing you? Alcohol is a really big one. There's denominational breakdowns because of that. Some churches think it's fine to have alcohol, some do not, right? When I was in the military chapel, we had communion, and we had, in the middle was the was the wine, and around the outside was the grape juice, and everybody could take their own. I mean, it was really contentious, and some people would come in as brand new members to chapel, and having never been in a chapel environment before, it, they spent several months really struggling with even having the presence of wine in their presence. I mean, it was pretty, it was pretty shocking to me. I didn't. I guess I'd never looked at it from that perspective. But, but just as he addresses about, um, is it in the? Um, hold on a second. He addresses about. My thought almost left me. It's trying to dangle in there. Oh, in this Lord's Supper, the reason behind the Lord's Supper, right? It's kind of like you lose sight of why you're doing it. Does it matter whether it's wine or grape juice? No. So in the undergirding message of him trying to explain about eating meat sacrificed to idols, he, he expresses this, this strong exhortation about loving one another. So last week, we made a list about what love is. Right, and we, and then when we entered into the next one in chapter eleven, um, about what is proper to do in the church and what is not concerning 
head coverings, we were able to also move that forward when we go into 12, 13, and 14. Again, it's all about love. Have you found that to be true when you looked at 10, uh, 12, to 12, 13, and 14? It's hard for me to keep those numbers straight. I'm, they almost kind of blend together, and it's like it's question after question after question. What seems to be the continuing message he has in, in, beneath all of them? No, yeah, don't be selfish, but rather demonstrate what? Love. Isn't that amazing? So we, we're seeing the exact same message. So now here we are ready to, to attack this particular subject on spiritual gifts. We are going to look at three chapters. That's going to be a hefty job to do. We may not get through all of it. We will do our best. What we are going to do, though, I think, because I think, you know, we're, we're going to be doing spiritual gifts as a, as a study, an in-depth study, a 12-week study, very shortly. Is that when our next study's lowest, do you remember? Okay, so we'll do Luke first and then spiritual gifts. So we have a little bit of time in between. But this will just kind of whet your appetite for what we're going to be doing. What we cannot do, and I'm just going to say it to you up front, we cannot resolve all your, in, all your uh, uh, questions about spiritual gifts itself. We can only break it down to a point of just kind of getting a big picture as to what spiritual gifts are, what, are, what is their purpose, and then address then the problem that was going on with this church and how did Paul then uh, exhort them to handle the spiritual gifts, right? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to do the best we can to hit all three chapters, but we'll, we'll see how far we get in it. We can only do so much. Okay, so let's start with looking at the subject of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Um, what is his first um, exhortation to them in chapter 12, the opening verses 1 through 3? Don't be unaware of them, right? I want you to understand that there are, there are a variety of spiritual gifts, and I do not want you to be unaware Now, by making that statement, what do you think he's saying about some of them that is apparent? There are some of them that are actually unaware. I thought that was kind of interesting. It's subtle, but it almost implies that maybe there are some who don't even think you have spiritual gifts. Maybe. You know, maybe they were, they were arguing about that part of it. On the other hand, there were others who were saying, yes, they're spiritual gifts, but what were they, what were they doing about those gifts? What were they emphasizing? Where was their focus? What was the, what was the rub that was going on? <coughs> yeah, something about one of the gifts was over the other. In the end, do we figure out which gift it is that they seem to be exalting over the other? Which is it? The gift of tongues is greater than the gift of prophecy. And what does Paul say about that? Nope, he actually switches that order, doesn't he? And does he give a qualifier to that? Why does he say that actually prophet, well, and you got to remember, the context of what we're looking at here is this is in the assembly. When you come together to do church, so you got to always make sure that you keep the balance here on, on what his, his point is. He's talking about when you come together in the church, women, you need to cover your head as a sign of authority because that shows respect and that's the proper order. And 
all of you, when you come into the church assembly, I want you to remember that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, don't forget what its purpose is. It's it to be done in remembrance of what Jesus did for us on the cross, right? And now he's talking about gifts, and he's saying, now, now church, when you come together in the assembly, and so one of the things that you were supposed to mark was uh, in the church, right? And, of course, that kind of merges in there with the whole or the body or whatever. So, so you, you might have ended up marking them in two different ways, but then they end up actually being the same in the end. But it's important for you to understand what he's addressing is when they come for church. When you come into the church building to have church worship, this is where your problem is lying concerning how you're handling spiritual gifts. And so he he says, I don't, first of all, I don't want you to be unaware that there are spiritual gifts. Then he tells, and so that's in, um, let's see, that's one through three. And then it's going to be four through 11. And what does he say in four to 11? What does he tell us about? There are a variety. So, so these are just, all we're doing is laying down some fundamental points. He's saying there are a variety Okay, there are a variety of those gifts, uh, but they, and they are given through, it's not but, they are given through, yeah. Through the same, and this, it, is, it starts like the spirit, but then how does it expound on that? In verses 4, 5, and 6, what did you see get developed there? Isn't that cool? You actually see the full Godhead in 3, 4. So in 4, it says it's the same Spirit. In 5, it says it's the same Lord. And in 6, six it says it's the same God. So we have the triune, the same Spirit, the same um, Lord, meaning Jesus, and the same God, meaning the Father. So we have the triune God represented in the giving of those gifts, right? And there are a variety of them. Why do you think that might be a significant point in this particular message here? Yeah. And at this point, we know that they've kind of, there's kind of a, a tug of war that uh, Paul addresses between the... Uh, there's contentiousness. That's a good word. That is exactly right. So there's a little bit of contentiousness going on about the gift, specifically about the gift of tongues. And so what Paul does is he brings in the subject of the prophet, which I think is hysterical because he kind of does the same thing that he, I mean, and it's in a good way, but I mean, he does it kind of in the same way he did back when we did marriage. And he says, well, I wish you all were not married like me, Right. But if you want to, go ahead, right? So in this one, he says, I wish you all did, you know, and like speak to, in tongues like I do. But he says, I wish that you all would be a prophet. But then he also says, I, I would much rather you all be a prophet. So uh, it's kind of like he battles back and forth with them about the fact that what they think about spiritual gifts uh, he wishes they felt about prof the prophet. But in this particular thing here, in, in 4 through 11, what he says is, however, there are a variety of gifts, right? So it's not just even about these two gifts. There's even more than that, by the way. And P.S. and by the way, if you're a person who has the spiritual gift of exhortation or of giving, 
you are not being demeaned in what he's saying. He just happens to use the two, the prophet and the tongue, to make his point, right? So there are a variety of gifts, right? And they are given through the same Spirit, Lord, and God. Okay, so in 12 and 13, he says, what then? Yet... That's right. Yet there are yet it's one God. So they are given through the same Spirit, and there and He says, "Yet we are all members of of what Christ, one body." Somehow, I think that they had kind of exalted a certain group. And you know what this kind of makes me think of is in First John, where they teach about Gnosticism, how there's some who come up to a higher level and a higher position sort of in this Gnosticism teaching that there were some that have it and some that don't and in first John he goes through that one little rendition in chapter two he says um, you young men you have it you little children you have it you old old men you have it right and he equalizes and says look if you know the father and if you know the son you all have that same spirit you all have that that spiritual endowment that God gives you through his Holy Spirit. And so here he's kind of doing the same thing. He's saying, we have a variety of gifts are given through the same spirit. And by the way, you're, you're given them um, to be members of one body, right? We are all members of one body. This is all being said at this point, just to kind of warm us up. We're going to get into the deeper details in this, but if we can kind of just lay down the flow of thought here in 12, when we hit 13 and 14, it begins to get a little bit more challenging, but, but also, I think, very rich. So in 14 to 26 of, of chapter 12, what is his next main point? You can't, they are interdependent upon one another. And, and since you're, you're all in one body and the body is dependent upon one another, and then the, the other message he has in there is about who it is that puts you there and where you are put, in, put into the body, right? Did you notice how many times that's repeated? One, two, three, three times he makes that statement. In 18, twice, and then in 24, what does he say about how you get put into that body? God is the one who has placed you there. So what does that tell you about your spiritual gifting? It's, it's God's design. It's God's appointment for you. It is really not something that you necessarily can pray for to receive, but that God, or even if you do pray for it. I mean, I'm not opposed to praying and asking God for anything, right? But, but even if you pr did pray, what is the bottom line in his message there? You don't get to decide that. It's God who decides that, right? So God has placed the members in the body, and we're, um, okay, God has placed the members. Okay, let's put this on here. Um, 
and I have forgotten. And how did you state yours, Lisa? We're all in one body. Yeah. Well, which is what I had sort of, God has placed the members in the body. I'm just going to do it this way, in the body. Yeah, I just want to make sure I get your thought here too as well. Fourteen. Yes. Okay, so 14 to 26, then God is the one that's placed them. And then what else do we see in 27 to 30 then? That's the end of that, and we'll be ready to dig in to start talking about these gifts more specifically. 20, 28 to uh, 31, or tw actually... What does he clarify in the closing verses that he says over and over? Okay. All do not have. All do not have, do they? All do not have, do they? All do not have, do they? Do you see how many times he says that? So what is he making clear to you and I? Nobody gets all the gifts, and, not all, no, and no one has all the gifts, right? Now, this one's really interesting to me um, in, in the context of everything else that he says. So God has appointed those various gifts, and not all the members have the same gifts. Not all members have the same gift. Now... Do we think that's an important point in, in our understanding of gifts today? Why? Go ahead. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> well, you know, if we can't talk about it, <laughs> we're going to be in trouble. Right. Right. I mean, because the, the re this is what I, the, the reason I want this to come out in this discussion, this is the appropriate time to, do, to have the conversation because we're looking at it in context of what Paul's addressing. Now, interesting. Did you think that was a current events problem that some people think that their gift is the definitive gift that everyone should have and that they should all operate in it? Very interesting, huh? Here he makes it really clear that there's a variety of gifts and not everyone gets the sa all the same gifts and that not all the members are going to have every single gift that's in there, right? So not all, he says it this way, um, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? I think you all should be teachers, every one of you. <laughs> I demand it. We're going to sit down, have a prayer sermon, and we're going to pray that God will give you the gift of teaching, and I expect to see every one of you out teaching next week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. All do, are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? And uh-oh, here's this one. All do not speak with tongues, do they? Now, there is a, a, a big issue, and it's been around for a long time, and if you've got anyone in your life or in your family that this is their thing and this is what they've been taught through their denominational teaching, obviously they're taught incorrectly. But there are denominations who think that all should have the gift of tongues. And this has become... Why would that become possibly a problem. What did we learn in the following chapters about that? 
What did he say about a church if if, if a person should Right. I, I kind of got tickled because he says, what if, what if someone, he says, therefore, and this is in chapter 14, verse 23, therefore, if the whole church assembles, again, we're talking about congregational worship, and they all come together, and they're all speaking in tongues, and then he mentions the ungifted men or the unbeliever. In other words, a visitor should come to your congregation, right? And, they, and they, will they not all say that you are mad? Would you say that that's a, a true impression, and has that been maybe even your own impression um, if you're not from that denominational background, right? And even if you are from that denominational background, would you also still not probably say if you were in the midst of a congregation where they're all speaking in tongues at one time, how might that be perceived as madness? And would you perceive it as madness? It's somewhat terrifying. Now, what's interesting for people who do uh, speak in tongues and do engage in that kind of worship service, they begin to get used to that, right? So, but the problem with that is, is are they functioning in that gift also in all the other aspects that Paul has outlined here? What has Paul said about those who use the gift of tongues? Right. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty shocking, don't you think? Do you think the charismatic churches have heard that teaching? What do you think they do with this teaching? <laughs> Maybe. They must. I mean, I just don't know. Honest, truly, I have little to no experience with this particular spiritual gift. Right. Right. That was going to be my next question is because if you're going, if you enter into a church where this chaos is going on and they're all speaking in tongues and there maybe are, either are no interpretations or if they are, they're, oh, they're drowned out by all the noise that's going on, then how is the church edified? What is the purpose for congregational worship? That's right. And what is the end result supposed to be for a person who hears something from God? Because a person speaking in tongues, they are speaking from where? If, if it's truly a gift of tongues. Now, I also believe that there are some who just are playing a game. They're making it up. And they may have felt pressured to go there because someone has told them if you don't, then you're not saved. And so they, out of desperation, they just go there. And it's a sad thing to do to church members is to make them feel pressured, you know, in that way. But with that aside, in 24 to 25, he says, but, so there's a contrast in chapter 14 about the, that tongues, right? Not all members have that same tongue as where we left off. But here he says, but what, he said, what if all prophesied and an unbeliever came in? Then what? Well, it might be, but he doesn't really say that. What does he actually say would happen if all, if all did prophesy? 
They at least there would be. Why is that? Yes. Okay. Well, what is the? So what does that mean? Tongues are as assigned to the unbeliever. What does that mean? There you go. She, she had a transformation of like that was immediate for her. It wasn't for us. Excellent. It was for the unbeliever to hear. Okay, very good. That's a excellent. I was hoping somebody would have that. Yes. Yes. And the Acts account is slightly different than the Corinthians account in how things are being presented to just so you know that in acts it's interesting because it's almost like a spiritual um miracle where they're hearing in their own language really interesting now it doesn't it doesn't clarify that they were speaking in their i'm not quite sure how that all fits together we'll get there okay In the other languages. Well, the, one of the things they do say in there is that they didn't know those languages, and yet they spoke them. So, right. So, but, and, so Acts and 1 Corinthians have to be kind of merged to try to parse together. This is one thing about God's word that's true. In every subject we study, you don't get all the story in one record, do you? So what we're looking at here today is for the purpose of doing what? What are we, what's our goal in looking at 1 Corinthians? What is the problem that's going on in 1 Corinthians? Division, right, and immaturity, right? And in their immaturity, they're not acting in love towards one another as well. So they've really got a threefold problem going on. Um, the divisions that come up, why do the divisions come up? Because they don't have a, knowledge, a true knowledge that they need that, that's become mature. They haven't grown up in their faith. They've not studied like they should. And so they don't know the truths of God. And, and then they have a, another secondary problem that comes out of that is they're not really acting in love. If they do have knowledge, the knowledge they do have puffs them up and it causes a brother to stumble, Right? So now we're seeing a manifestation of this in this specific subject of tongues. So the purpose of, one of my friends said to me the way that she likes to describe spiritual gifts is that as, uh, the spiritual gift of tongues is its evangelism in a foreign language. Therefore, it's a sign to the unbeliever because it's for the purpose of evangelism, <coughs> primarily right? Now, can it be used in other capacities? Certainly, God can do anything. But when you are in a scenario, in particular, I think where people would have the most experience with the gift of tongues in an appropriate way would be 
in, in living in foreign languages, if you're in places where foreign languages are, are spoke. So if you're a missionary and you go to China, or you're a missionary and you go to Russia, or you're a missionary and you go to Saudi Arabia, don't do that, but if you know. <laughs> I mean, we should, but you gotta be really careful, right? But if you go to these foreign speaking countries, then the gift of tongues might really be prevalent with those that are there. God would probably gift somebody to be able to do that. Why? Because the end goal is to do what? Edify, edify the body. But also, what does 24 say? In 24, he says, if they're all speaking pro as prophets, he's making a comparison. And in this case, he's actually saying, well, if they were all speaking as prophets, it's, it's not going to happen. But if they were, it would actually be an okay thing. Because why? They're, people are going to get convicted, and then they're going to declare uh, that God is, is certainly among you. And it says that that person then that hears the prophet when they speak, they're going to fall on their face and worship God. So from that little tiny statement there, is there actually a point about the purpose of all the gifts for that matter? Any spiritual gift, what is the ultimate goal in the exercise of the gift? that God would be glorified, that men would fall on their face and worship God, that there would be a thankful in their heart toward God for things, right? Um, and declare that God certainly is among you. So very interesting. So not all members have the same gift. Takes us right into that, that very um, hot topic of the tongues, which is what he does. So he starts out in chapter 12 to lay down some doctrinal principles about uh, the, the gifts themselves, right? And I would say the central message in chapter 12 that, that, that is most systemic to all of it has to do with that it's God-centered, that God gives the gifts, God determines it. God. So you see this repeated over and over in chapter 12. He starts it with the triune God mentioned in 4, 5, and 6. Then in verse 8, he says it's through the Spirit, and then in 11, he says it's distributing to each one individually just as he wills, the Spirit wills. Then he says in 18, God has placed the member just as he desired. 24, he says, but God has so composed the body. 28, God has appointed in the church. How, did y'all notice that? Did you catch it, pick up on that? How many times the reference in, in context of all that said in 12, the undergirding of, of it is that God is the one that gets to determine that. So what might that tell you about what they thought about how gifts were received? They apparently thought they could choose the gift that they wanted. And do we have that teaching as well going on, particularly in the charismatic church, Right where they, they say that you can lay hands on and pray for a person to receive a specific gift, right? And is that an accurate interpretation based on the, what, seven or eight times it says God determines the place, the Spirit does it, it's God that appoint, appoints it just as he wills, right? So is that our will or his will? His will. So it would be a contradiction for anyone to tell us that gifts are something you can you can determine for yourself or that you can determine for another person. Absolutely, you can ask, but... Right. Can I, but I, and I could ask, 
And I have to tell you that there have been times in my past where I have said, God, I don't understand this gift of tongues. Would you please give it to me so I can experience it and understand this? I need to be able to teach it better. I can't teach something I've never experienced or, and had very little contact with. But guess what? You should. <laughs> you should. But, but, the, but the result might be what? Good. You can. And the, uh, but, and, but the outcome of what you might be praying for, of course, that takes you into a whole subject of prayer, right? How do you pray? It's according to God's will. And in, according to this, who is the one that wills your gift to you? So the ultimate, God, it all goes down to God. So what, all I'm saying is I'm trying to counter the world's teaching that you and I can lay hands on a person and pray for them and they will receive it. And as a matter of fact, in, in the, the gift of tongues, which was going on in this church at that time, and guess what? It's still going on in our church, some of our churches today, that you are, if you enter into a charismatic church environment where you don't speak in tongues, they will insist that you get that gift. Yeah. Well, I'm not, okay, and I'm, Sarah, I'm, but Sarah, I'm not saying all charismatic churches. What I'm saying is, would you say that this charismatic church was operating that way from what's being said to us? Oh, yeah. They had, they had the women's issue all messed up, the contentiousness of these women. They had taken their liberty, understanding that they're equal in Christ with a man. They had taken that, and so that means I can usurp my designed position as a woman and have an authority over a man in a way that I should not, right? And that's what they were trying to do. They also were not uh, exercising the, spirit, the, uh, the Lord's Supper correctly, and th thereby they were actually dishonoring it, t taking it in an unworthy manner. And he's saying, you have to remember, you don't just take the Lord's Supper for the sake of eating a meal and getting drunk. You are there to remember what the Lord did. And now in this case, we're seeing a church that has uh, capitalized. They had, uh, as a matter of fact, he says in one of the verses here, that if you're going to ha desire a gift, I would desire, I think it's at the end of, um, uh, yes, 31. He says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, right? And I will show you a still more excellent way. And he, he says it again in another place about, where is the other one? Uh, 12, 14, 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, Seek to abound for the edification of the church. So he takes it from stop focusing on a person getting a specific gift that you want to pray for them to have. I want you rather to focus on edification of the church on the whole, which means what? God gets to choose. God places in the body as he so sees the need and the, and the um, uh, edification of it through its exercise. And he is the one that will determine that. And I want you to simply say, Lord, I want edification of the church. Whatever that means. And you know what our needs are. So bring us whoever and whatever we need, right? On the other hand, we started in chapter 12 with, I don't want you to be unaware. Here's the bigger 
problem I think that we have in our churches today who are not charismatic. We go the all the way over here on the opposite end. And we say, we're not going to talk about that problem, that subject, because it's a problem. Right, right. There you go. Exactly. So, no, you are absolutely right. So we can't say tongues don't exist and that they're not a gift. And as a matter of fact, because of the fact that the gifts are listed in the way that they are, and tongues and interpretation of tongues is right in there, and also, by the way, miracles, the affecting of miracles, which we kind of overlook also. But once, when we come back to this subject in our spiritual gift study and really parse this out more carefully, we're going to get into each one. Week by week, we're going to look at, um, at one or two sub subject matters and really dig in. We're going to be able to look at the, um, the use of them through the lives of written, the, what's written in the Gospels for us or written in the Word of God for us. And so that's going to help us. Right now, all we're kind of doing is pulling back to get the bigger premise. We're trying to see just the big picture of it. And what has happened, though, in this particular church is they have gone one way, right, with it's all about tongues. And why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that was what they did? Yeah. Yeah. And when you couple that with some of the, the points where Paul keeps telling them, basically, it's not all about you, right? And don't do this for selfish gain and don't do this for, um, to, pardon? Yeah, for self-edification. It's not to, exactly what, their, their point is they had stopped loving others and loving God first and loving others, and they were looking at self. And so this gift fit nicely into an immature believer's palette. And that is really where the source of the problem comes. So if we go back to the context of the book and say, we're looking at a church that's functioning incorrectly, not correctly, and he's, he's correcting them on all kinds of things. And he's drawing them down to the basic principles of love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he's also doctrinally instructing them on each of the points to try to clarify how things should be functioning. Naturally gifted in and God ex ex enhances it for his design purpose. After all, he created you in the womb. And, and how much of your life does God know from beginning to end? The all of it. He knows the end before the beginning. So he creates you in the womb, designs you to who you're going to be, knowing you're going to become his child, and he equips you uh, through it, at, through strengthening you in various ways. And then when you become gifted, he can accentuate what you already have. Obviously, he's not going to give you a gift in something you have no equipment for whatsoever. However, I have heard some people receive speaking gifts who are extremely shy and are very quiet in their natural state. And they hardly say boo at home, but when they get on the pulpit, whoa, 
You know, they're like dynamite. So it can work both ways. And it, it's just that this is the mystery behind it, and that is it's God's determination, not ours, right? This church had taken something and had, had accentuated its importance and its value, and they thought that, apparently that everyone should be doing it. And so he's making clarification in here that not all have the same gifts and not all have all the gifts. No one has all the gifts except God himself, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. That could, I can understand how that might happen. We also saw that the, the way that tongues is displayed to us in the book of Acts, it's the, the, the designed outline of, book of Acts is that you take the gospel to, uh, was it to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in those three divisions, the tongues fell and there was a manifestation. The tongue fell, there was a manifestation. The tongues fell, there was a man. And so it's mentioned three times in the book. Huh? There wasn't always laying on hands, though, when they received the Spirit in the others. But I know. But yes, absolutely, because it happened in the early church, and these were things that certainly by, by um, word of mouth, the stories would have been told, and maybe they perceived that as something that they needed. What, what also might entice them to want to go to something that's so ecstatic? in that way that's so yes wouldn't that be nice we were talking about Susan and I were talking about the earlier I kind of wish we all had a little gold cross that just appeared on our heads of course that would make us a target in days of persecution but it would sure be nice you know (laughs) yeah a glow a glowing cross you know but I've always thought that my my daughter my daughter made a beautiful pope uh, picture. It's about the size of this board up here. It's huge, and it's a uh, it's a um, a street. Buildings. There's firemen. There's cart carts being pulled by horses, and all these people are doing different things: sweeping and walking and holding hands and cleaning windows, and all these things are going on. And some of the people are darkened; they're just kind of a shadowed outline, and others are bright and kind of a glow to them. And, and it was just su- such a cool picture of how God looks upon the earth and distinguishes the light from the darkness. He sees it. We don't. But he can see the distinguishing between those who have the light and those who don't have the light. And I always thought, wouldn't that be lovely if we could actually see, see that in ourselves? Oh, that's awesome. That's a great testimony. Okay, so in this, so this church has a problem where they've gone one direction too far. I think that we, and I'm saying me mostly, but I think we, the, the, 
in the Protestant denominations have almost gone the other direction too far. We have to come together and find the healthy balance in this. And I do think a study of spiritual gifts will help us in that way. Another point that I think is really important is where he says, I don't want you to be unaware about spiritual gifts. I think we are totally unaware. How many in this room actually know for sure what your spiritual gifting is? Well, a few of you do, but some of you don't, right? And so I think that because we haven't spent a lot of time really teaching on the subject, the church is a little bit ignorant about it, and some of them are a little leery of it. It's almost like, I, you know, the, because it is a hot button when, the, when, it, when you come to the subject of tongues, they just have taken the whole concept and shelved it and just kind of walked back. And because it's not taught regularly from the pulpit or from your Sunday school classes, the, the awareness of it, the understanding about them and how they operate and the benefit of knowing, I cannot tell you how beneficial it is if a pastor actually knows who his gifted people are and in what capacity. You can grab that person and use them for all kinds of things if you know what their real gifting is. And a really wise pastor will have in his inner circle around him a balance of spiritual gifts, not all just one, or not all just two or three. If they all have a speaking gift and they're all huddled in a circle, what's going to happen with your balance over here of things like uh, administration and giving and um, maybe even, well, evangelism often goes into the, tongue, the, tongue, the speaking gift, but uh, mercy gifts, um, I tell you that those are, it's dangerous for a person to not have that balance around them. And quite honestly, it's, it's really dangerous for all of us. If you and I are living life and we don't know who's gifted in what area, when we have struggles or problems, who do we call? Right? We need to know who is gifted. If I know a person who has been really called to be a prayer warrior and their spiritual gifting is discernment and is wisdom, word of wisdom, for instance, I know to call those, that particular person to pray for me when I'm really, really needing serious prayer. You know, I can always call on the whole congregation to pray. But if you know a person is divinely gifted in that area, that's their specialty. Why did God give them that specific prayer gift and that specific anointing of discerning and of wisdom to edify the church? And the church should count on them and rely on them. Yeah. That wasn't our job, was it, to see what God was going to do. Our job was to pray for them. Yeah. Um, later, though, and it's watched happen that it got around, though, and that's why all these people kept coming is because miracles were happening. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a great thing to be a part of and to see, but also to know you literally had no idea what was happening. Yeah. Uh, I love that. That's a great testimony of the operation of a person who 
prays in, prays in, in a way that is effectual and powerful, and yet you know the work is not yours, it's God's. All you're doing is being the vessel. What, what's really cool, though, is why do they come to you for prayer instead of one of their friends? Why were they doing that? Okay. Yeah. But they had you marked yeah. at, in their mind as the one who was speaking for God. And that was, so when they came to you for prayer, they're really coming to God for prayer. So they're seeing you, but really they're seeing God. And see, this is the, this is the cool thing about spiritual gifting. When you're working in your spiritual gifting and people recognize it, they're seeing you and they're hearing you, but really what they're doing is doing this because they're listening for God. That's who they're, and that is what this says about the prophet. What is it at the end of that gift of prophecy? And it's true with any gift. If your gift is mercy, if your gift is um, uh, maybe the, the, to disciple others, or maybe it's, I mean, there's a variety of things we haven't gotten into yet, I know. There are other cross-references. But when you, uh, administrations or, um, give me some more. Giving, thank you. I mean, whatever that gift is, people, when they come to you, giving is a really good one. You know, if you've got the gift of giving and, you are, and you're actually mature in your faith and you know the word of God, then you're also much more discerning about how you give. Your giving is not just emotional throwing money at things. It's a discerning of things. And so a spiritually mature person who gives correctly and, and well is recognized by the body of Christ. And then I would go to that person and go, what do you think about this project? I want to give to it. What do you think? So I would go to the person who has that gifting and they would probably have, because of their giftedness and their calling to really know about who to give to and who not to give to, they will have already done all the research. They've already done all the all the reading up on things, they've talked around, they've had some experiences maybe with things. So their gifting has equipped them to be a great counselor for me. Does that all kind of make sense? These, these gifts are given for the purpose of edification of the body, and the church is supposed to work cohesively. But if you don't know that, if you, if you don't understand that there are these varieties of gifts, then you're ignorant of them, and therefore you don't know what your gift is. I cannot tell you how many people I have in, in casual conversations, I'll say, well, what is your spiritual gift? And they'll go, well, I'm not sure. Either they are shy about it, and they don't want to just come out and say what it is, or they really just don't know. And my question is, why? Why wouldn't you know what your spiritual gift is? What do you think is the stumbling stone to that process? You know what? I got a testimony about that in my life. I did not think I was a teacher. And I didn't, I really wa was intimidated by the idea of standing up and convey, because you're a target once you do this, you, you are. But the, but the real truth behind it is if it's your gifting, you almost can't help yourself. You're compelled, number one. But number two, others recognize in you that the wisdom you have is not yours, but it's actually the word because you've been in the word. And you're, and you're drawn to be in the word so much that, you know, that, that drawing by the Holy Spirit to equip me makes me the, able to be able to give a, a somewhat intelligent, you know, insights. And 
I think that when we lose sight of the fact that it's God that's actually working in us and that it's God that visibly they are to be seeing, that that's when we go astray. And I think that's what happened in this Corinthian church. They took the eyes off of God and put the eyes on themselves, and they wanted a gift that seemed kind of out there and was Star Spangled Banner. And I, my question earlier was, why do you think in this church in particular they had that problem? What do you know about Corinth, about Greece in that time in history? Yes. They were into big time into the ecstatic things of uh, mysticism and um, uh, ecstatic utterances, by the way. There's that or oracle of something. Delphi, yes. The oracle of Delphi at Greece. That was it. And so there was all these kinds of tongues that were going around, but of course they were imitations, right? They were false tongues. And Paul addresses that. He says, before you were led how? Astray. Right, but uh, so let me go back and find that. That's at 12, isn't it? The beginning of 12. Uh, you know that when you were pagans, you were all led astray to the mute idols, by the way. <laughs> I love this because what has he already told us before about idols and when he talked about eating of things, sacrifices? Idols are nothing. They aren't even real. They're just a made-up thing in your mind. He says, but you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led, right? But he says, now, he says, I want you to understand that if you're a Christian, you are led by the Spirit. And that leading is distinctively different. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the, again, how we, you were to make a list on the subject of spiritual gifts. And I don't know how you broke it down, but I broke mine down like this. Who gives it? Why is it given? How is it given? When is it given? So we want to just kind of go through and address that. So we've talked about the who. Let's cover that again real quick. So who gives the gifts? Okay, God, the Spirit, and Jesus, right, or the Lord. Okay, and what verses do you see, again, just to reiterate one time, how do we see that he gives us, give, give me some statements on that in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, about who gives the gifts. Uh-huh. And 6, it says, and it's God, and it, what does it also say about God in reference to that, the gifts? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So although it, it's broken down by the Spirit, the, the, um, the Spirit, the Lord, and God, but then it says in conclusion, it's God who works all things in all people, right? I loved that one in particular. That's right. Okay, so that's six, and this is four... Five, oh, I think it's backwards. Six, five, and four, because I think I put it backwards. No, it's this way. Four. I really messed it up, didn't I? I got them all mixed up, but it's four, five, and six. And then it's God who works in us. Um, and the Spirit distributes them to us as He wills in verse 11, right? Um, and 18, again. It's God that places the members in the body as he desires. And then in verse 28, right? So we, is that an absolute definitive understanding at this point? 
So no more question about who gives the gifts, right? Okay, now why, why are they given, how they are given, when they are given? Let's, let's, look at, um, let's look at how they're given real quick. It's kind of a reiteration of who gives it, but how, how is it stated there? What are some points on how it's given that you think are? Okay. How given? As who get desires? Mm-hmm. And what verse was that one? Uh, eight. Oh, 18. I missed it. <laughs> we got it twice, huh? Okay, it's uh, just as he wills, and then 18, he has placed the members as he desired, so 18, okay. I just want to get the right verse number up here for you, okay? As he desires. There you go. According or through the Spirit. Now that's interesting because what does that tell you then about the when? Does that tell you anything about the when the Spirit, when the gifts are probably given? If it's given to you by the Spirit and through the Spirit and according to the Spirit, what does that tell you? Then when you receive the Spirit, you receive what? Your spiritual gifting. So when received, when you receive the Spirit. Now, would you say it's true that some people can therefore, especially someone like uh, in my case with this, a, a teaching gift, and I did not want to confess I had a teaching gift. I spent a lot of years saying, no, I'm not a teacher, and sitting out, you know, in my desk taking my notes. It was probably a good thing, though, because I didn't really have a whole lot of knowledge, right? But would you say that some gifts don't really manifest themselves right away because of why? Maturity. Spiritual maturity is what's going to begin to show a, and express a spiritual gifting, if not, if not totally, but also even just correctly. Because sometimes you could, maybe you do have a spiritual gift, but you're operating in the flesh so much that the gift doesn't look like the gift. It almost looks like the opposite of the gift, right? One of my years and years and years ago, before I was even doing precept, I did a spiritual gift study. That was the first time I took a test of spiritual gifts, and it showed me to be a teacher. And the pastor that was teaching it said, no, you're not a teacher. And I believed him. <laughs> and so for years I said, no, I'm not a teacher. <laughs> but anyway, in the end, I, I had a friend who rebuked me. Why? Because I was sitting out in the, in the group, you know, as a student, but she saw the potential that I should be teaching because what is the purpose of a gift? To use it. To, and, and if I keep it bottled up and don't exercise it, what? It doesn't help anyone. Now, you know, and quite honestly, a lot of the reason I hadn't done it sooner was of my pride. 
You don't want to set yourself out because people can criticize you when you start to teach, right? That's true with all your gifts. Yes. You could. And sometimes you have none of those, but you end up being both. I was never a teacher, and I was never skilled in it, and yet this is where God placed me. Nope. Yes. I think that you're human, but they don't become a spiritual gift until you receive what? The Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that activates the spiritual gifting. The other thing is, is you can have natural inclinations in your flesh, but that do not translate into your spiritual gifting. Not always is does the teacher become a biblical teacher. Yes, yes. But if you have natural qualities in your hu- in your flesh. What are they? They're just natural qualities, right? When you, bec- when you receive the Holy Spirit, um, is there a capacity, a potential for you to take those earthly qualities and transfer them into the spiritual realm that now energized by the Holy Spirit, you're able to exercise them? Is that true? Yes. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, but, and then there's someone like me. I was never a teacher, and I had no educational training as a teacher, and I've never been to college, and I've never been to DTS or all those really good schools like that, right? But yet, here I am. And not just teaching, but teaching precept, which is really scary, right? Huh? Go ahead. Okay. It was a joke. Inappropriate. You can tell me later, okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm doing whatever you guys can grab a hold of and learn, and yeah, right. Or I think I go, or sometimes I go home and I think nobody got a thing, but then pretty soon I'm getting emails and they're going, oh, it was awesome, you know, whatever. So uh, you don't know, but the point is with the gifts is. Yes, God, obviously, God is going to use some of your, ta- your natural talents and strengths, and he's going to magnify those through the power of the Spirit working in you. Um, but sometimes, as he says, I will choose the foolish things to shame the wise. And I would say that's what he did with me. I was taken from not being qualified at all as a teacher and having any skills as a teacher and have no training as a teacher, and yet he made me a teacher. 
And um, I think that's astounding. And I think that's exciting to be a part of that. It's exciting to be the receiving end of something like that. Because quite honestly, in my natural skills, really, I'm I'm great housekeeper. I can cook really well. That's about it. <laughs> I'm not really talented in the secular world. I didn't get training in the secular world. I was always a wife and a mom. No, and that is not any less, but that doesn't trans... But you know what's interesting? Both of those in the natural realm would seem to be that I should have the gift of helps or of service, right? Or exhortation maybe or something along those lines but instead he made me a teacher so it can work either way and that's the whole point to this we don't know where God's going to place us how do you think you come about to discover what your gifts are that's a good question does anybody have any brilliant insights on that Okay. Okay. H- how do you know that you've been spiritually gifted as a helper? That that is the design place in the body of Christ that God has put you. How do you come to figure that one? Okay. Not me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. And then how do you know that you're actually fitted adequately and you are really being the, the edification that you need to be if you're going to be operating? How do you come to find out whether or not you're actually operating in your giftedness. I think we get blessed, number one. There you go. But also, the other thing is people Yes. There's where I was trying to go to. I think that, I mean, there's some practical things in the process of coming to know what your gifting is. Is People identify it in you and they say, you're good at this. Oh, wow, that was a blessing. Oh, man, I couldn't have done it without you, right? And then, and then because of the verbal reinforcement also, they're recognizing that giftedness in you, and therefore God's getting glorified, and you're actually in the right place. How many of you have ever been in a scenario where a person's trying to maybe exercise leadership or administration or teaching, and they're not gifted at it? <laughs> well, tell me what happens. Well, <laughs> It can be chaos, and it can actually end up causing not edification, but what? Division or anger or frustration or just like a forget this, I'm, you know, somebody leave follower, get out of the way would be a leader's concept on that, right? Would be like, just, you know, move, let me fix this, let me organize this, let me get this together. Let me give you a plan, you know, would be the organizer in, in someone. So I think that spiritual gifting, if you don't know what your gifting is, you need to experience working. In, and I can tell you in my early Um, faith walk with God, I worked in the nursery, I sang in the choir, I worked in the church um, kitchen, 
helping set things up. I was really bad at it. People would, you know, I would always, you know, it's like they were pushing me out of the way to, because you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was looking around. And yet, I'm a, I'm a great organizer at home, and I can certainly serve a meal, right? So I'm organized enough. But when it came to serving in the church, I wasn't really skilled at knowing what needed to be done. It, there wasn't a sense of, oh, I, need, I should handle that because so-and-so is going to need this or that. I, that training, one of the greatest gifted uh, servers we have, uh, not to negate any of the rest of you, but also is Don, Don Wistiff. If anybody's ever been around that man, he's like, like Johnny on the spot all the time. He can hardly walk, but yet he gets in there and he's got chairs moved and he's setting people up and um, when you're in the presence of a person that is gifted and they're operating in their capacity of giftedness, it is recognized by the body and the body of Christ will also reinforce it for you. They will let you know that you have blessed them. And so when you hear these words, you've blessed me, you've blessed me, you have to receive it and consider that as an affirmation from God. My problem was for so long, I because I had already had this hardwired word from this pastor that I respected that I was that wasn't my gift of course I was only a baby Christian like a few months and in, in my real faith and he said no 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 you're not a teacher I'm going yeah because like I have no knowledge <laughs> at that point I was just brand new in faith but the problem is is I had hardwired that so even though I through the years was hearing people say oh you're good at that oh wow that was really helpful you have such good insights or whatever whatever the compliment was I wasn't receiving it I was rejecting it as, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Well, everybody feels that way, right? I heard that often, yeah. After, after that, there was Not totally, but it is a confirmation if you're operating in the gift. God will, you will be recognized in your gift for your giftedness, and people will give you a compliment. That's why another reason, by the way, this is another reason why I think it's really bad to compliment people if they're doing something and it's they're not doing really a good job because what you do is encourage them to stay in it and if it's not their giftedness the body of Christ should not encourage a person to stay there we need to help people find their real giftedness where they can shine right Mm-hmm. No, no, it's not. It's the spirit working. But I do know this, that if you're a brand new baby Christian and you don't know yet where you fit in the body of Christ, the best thing for you to do, what I'm saying is, is jump in and start serving. Jump in and start doing. And what's going to happen is gradually, little by little, as you mature in your faith, you might find you move from one thing into another. I did. I started out working in the nursery and uh, you know, uh, although I got to say pretty early on, I was teaching Sunday school. I was teaching GAs. Do you guys know what GAs are? Girls in Action. It's a missions training for first through sixth grade girls that was in my Baptist church early. And so um, I taught GAs for a while, and I taught vacation Bible school. And, you know, I did all, and it was all more like a serving capacity. I would just, let me be a helper in the classroom. I didn't want to teach the lessons because I didn't know enough to teach the lessons. But I would sit in there and help the teacher organize the kids and all that kind. So you just have to jump in and start working. 
And once you start working enough, pretty soon, you're, the, the thing which gives you that, that com compelling desire to do will start to well up. God will give you a confirmation by his spirit in you, affirming that this is, this is right, I have sent this. The other thing that's another way of really knowing is opportunity. God will open doors and close doors. And if he keeps opening the door for you to step into a capacity of one kind or another, um, and you go into it and you have successes in it and people are pleased with it, this also is another way of coming to see what your giftedness is. It's, it's, a, part of, it's a process. It takes some time. But it shouldn't, be for, it shouldn't be forever. You shouldn't have been in faith for 20, 30, 40 years and still not know what your gift is. You need to figure it out so that you can really glorify God in the place that he's put you in the body, right? All right, so why is it given then, again? For the common good. So it's actually to give uh, the, uh, the, the body a goodness manifested to it, right? It is a manifestation of the spirit. Now, I think this is a significant point in 7 where it says it's, it's as a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I do think that part quality of why it's given is also important. It is a manifestation of the spirit. How is God given the glory if they don't really recognize the Holy Spirit is what's at work in you? And I can tell you, in particular, even my own husband and my daughter, for instance, they talk about um, with me with my gifting is it's obvious that God gave that to you because that is not something of your natural <laughs> talent. Yeah, I know. Family, well, you know, you're really not a teacher, Mom, but you're a really good Bible teacher. That's pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, but it's, it's as a manifestation. Oh, very much so. I think so. How, how many of you feel that way, that when you're operating in your gift, you're, you're not only motiv motivated, but there's a satisfaction in it? You are. You're just do. it's just, that's it. I can't tell you how excited I get when I finally get through the homework and I got the chart done and it's all, it's all nice and tidy and, and it seems like it makes sense to me. <laughs> Can you tell me? Yes, yes. Yes, I know. I, I torture poor Lisa because we can't have lunch. Well, you all know this. If we have a conversation in the room, I teach the whole lesson before we even get up front, right? Yeah, I can't help it. <laughs> okay, so those are just some tips on the idea. Why the gifts for the common good and as a manifestation of the Spirit because God wants the world to see the Spirit in you. I'm going to put that on here. God wants the world... to see his spirit in you. That's really significant. Now, let's go on to talk about what's given. I want you to hang on to this thought, though, because we're going to expand on that just a little bit in, in one of the other places. I'm hoping in Chapter 13 we can get to it at least. We may not get through 14, but we maybe get through 13. Okay, now, let's just make a quick list of what, was, what is given. It is a manifestation of the spirit. 
Yes, I want you. To, I, we're just going to list what we learned about. Yes, there sure are. So let's start with a chap, uh, verse uh, 8, and we'll work all the way down to 28. Okay, word of wisdom. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go through and talk about each one of these, but when we do our spiritual gifts study, we will be able to go in and say, well, what does that mean? What is word of wisdom? And how does it manifest itself? And what, what is its design purpose? And how is it different from word of knowledge, for instance? Right? Okay, because so, that's the next one, word of knowledge. Okay. What else? Faith. Did you ever think about faith as being a spiritual gift? Don't we all have faith? Aha. Uh-huh. So, so kind of like the idea of spiritual gifts on the whole, yes, we all, have, we all have gifts, and some of us can have some natural things, but then there's the manifestation of it being really uh, energized through the Spirit as your designed place in the body as a spiritual gift. Faith also. We all have faith. We all have a measure of faith. But some have the gift of faith, which is distinct and for a distinct purpose. And that goes beyond the norm of the rest of us. So that's a really interesting gift to look at. And then healing, miracles, prophecy. There's another one. That that one can be an interesting Conflict. What did you learn about prophecy as far as defining it? There you go. It almost says it right within the text itself. And so anytime you see edification, exhortation, and consolation, then the other thing that can happen is you can see how prophecy and teaching can kind of merge a little bit often. So a person who has a prophet gift could also have a teaching gift or vice versa. Maybe their gift is teaching, but they also on occasion will exercise that, that prophet gift. And how those are distinguished uh, um, is going to be parsed out later, right, when we get into it. Okay, then we have distinguishing of spirits. Um, Then we have various kinds. I like the way they put it on here, various kinds of tongues. Now, why do you think they put various kinds of tongues? And so apparently there are different kinds of manifestations. So now we're going to go back and look back here in the, in the 4, 5, and 6 where he says there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord, and there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So in the varieties uh, or the various kinds of tongues, that can really apply there. There can be various kinds. A, a teacher can have a varying kind of diverse uh, uh, diversity. Maybe she speaks to large audiences or maybe like me test smaller classrooms. It's it, the varying uh, the effect of it can be, can vary and can vary at different times. 
tongues ha definitely has some varying kinds. There's a, there's a tongue which has to do with um, evangelism, but then there's also a, apparently a tongue that has to do with prayer, right? And, so, and they're distinguished from one another. But there's also various kinds of tongues, simply meaning various kinds of languages as well. And then what else is there? Have we seen? And let's jump to, uh huh? Oh yeah, interpretations. Yes. And in the congregational gathering, what's the qualifier for being able to speak in tongues? You must be able to have an interpretation. If there's no interpretation, what are you to do? Hold your tongue. <laughs> Be quiet. And what does that tell you then about the gift of tongues? Is it something you can control? Yes. Apparently so. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so now there's another little segment of gifts that goes beyond what we look at there when you hit verse 28. And what do you see there? Apostle. Now, that one is sometimes controversial. People are like, no, you can't be an apostle except in the days of Christ when you walked with him. But apparently there's a gift, a spiritual gifting of apostleship, which is definitive besides the apostles with that definite article, right? And then there are teachers and prophets. Mm -hmm. um, say, uh, restate that. Let me hear you say it again. Yeah, I do think that's, that I think there's a, uh, one of the reasons I made that distinguishing difference was the gift of tongues operates slightly different also outside of the church. When they're out in evangelism in the world out there, it, you're not going to have the same orderliness and so forth. And the interpretation part of it even may not have to come into play. If you're speaking to someone in a foreign language, you are speaking from the Lord to them. They're hearing the mysteries of God, but maybe there's not necessarily an audience there that needs an interpretation at that point. Maybe that would be a time when the gift of tongues doesn't need an interpreter. That's my guess. But in the church, if you're in the worship service, there must be. Or don't do it. Oh, I thought it did. No? Is that is that the question? Well, actually, if you go back to eleven, it says the whole body, which is in the church. I think it just changes his vernacular. It's the whole thing is in the church, the entire context of 
uh, 12 through 14 is all in the church. As a matter of fact, all the way starting back with 11 as well, where they had the problem with the women in head coverings and the Lord's Supper in the church, in the assembly. This is where they were having these problems. So when you come together, which is why I made it as a segment division from 11 through 14 as in the assembly. Problems they were having in the assembly and the function of the assembling together. Okay, I hope that answered the question. Okay, so now we've got that. Now let's go on and let's take a look at chapter 13 real quick and hopefully we can at least get through this one in 15 minutes. I think we can. Okay, now here is the, the interesting thing. He makes a change. Do you think the focus seems to change for you in 13? From spiritual gifts in 12, it's hot and heavy. It's all on who gives the gifts, how they're given, when they're given, why they're given, and even what was given, right? But then as he closes out 13, or 12 rather, he says, but the very, actually that last verse could almost be moved over into chapter 13 to make it actually stand out a little bit more. So what does he say in that but? Yeah, now, interesting. So what are the greater gifts? Boy, does this one get messed up big time for interpretation because they don't carry it through into 13 to get the answer. Instead, they start speculating about what the greater gifts are, and they start saying, oh, well, maybe this is a greater gift, and maybe that's a greater gift. What is he actually saying? What does he tell us in 13 are the greater gifts? Verse 13 of chapter 13. Read that for me. Okay, so now why, tell me this, the why behind um, faith, hope, and love are the greater gifts? They abide. And the others, they, they go away. So would you say just by that very point in and of itself, does that tell you that these three things, faith, hope, and love, are not the same as the spiritual gifts listed in 12? They're a gift from the Spirit, but they're not a spiritual gift for the operation of the church. They are, who gets the gift of faith, hope, and love, by the way? We all do. So what does chapter 12 tell us about all getting the gifts? Not all get the same gift, right? But do we all have faith, hope, and love? Yes. Therefore, if you didn't catch that, you might want to make yourself a distinguishing. What I did is when I moved into chapter 13, um, I made the distinction about when I'm speaking about faith, hope, and love, and in particular love, um, that it's the gift of love, but it's, the, but it's in contrast to the spiritual gifts that are listed in the verses previous. Chapter 13, verse 13 clarifies for you what 1231 is speaking about. So you might want to just make a note next to verse 31, 13, 13 is your answer to what is the greater gifts right? Earnestly desire the greater gifts. Why does Paul say then that, that faith, hope, and love are a greater gift? And why particularly love? It is going to endure. And what does he tell us about the contrast between the spiritual gifts and the gift of love? How does he compare them? Right? Okay, without love, your spiritual gifting is what? It's nothing. So, yeah, it's, it could be just noise, that's right. Okay, so one three, through three is without love, 
Um, what? How do you want to state this? You're noisy or clanging, okay. That's right. Very good. So that takes us back to chapter 3 where he says one day your works are going to go through the fire and if it remains then you will receive a crown. And if you do, and if it does not remain it will just simply be burned up. And for sure what will remain? Love. So if you have anything that you've exercised in love, it will remain. Right? Very good. Okay, so one through three, it says, without love, I'm nothing, and my gift profits nothing, right? Not only does my gift profit me nothing, but I am nothing. I'm going to put that on there. I am nothing without love. My gift is of no profit, and I am nothing. And why do you think he makes that statement that I am nothing? What do you think that they had done concerning the spiritual gift of tongues? Yep. It had puffed him up. I am something. See me speaking in tongues? I'm something. And he's saying, no, you're nothing. Without love, you're nothing. Yep, that's it. Okay, and so then in 4 to 7, he follows that and says, what about love? Yeah, he may, it, in, in your title almost has to be an um, analytical conclusion thought more than, I started out with love is, because that's actually in the text, but then how you finish that statement can vary. What I did is since 13.13 uh, 13 concludes what he says at the end of 12, he wants them to pursue, earnestly desire the greater gifts, so... This gift of love is one of the greater gifts, right? So I just put love is the greater gift. Okay. That's exactly right. All right. So seven, through 7, now 8 to 13, then, he says... What's going to happen in, in 8 to 13 is he makes a contrast as to why love is what is the one that is greater. And what does he say about it? How does he, what does he tell us that's important? What were your key words? One passes away and one abides, right? And so that was the contrast. He's saying the reason, the reason your gifts are not as important and not as great as the gift of of love is because love is what abides. Love is what goes with you into eternity, right? But your spiritual giftings apparently are going to pass away. There's going to be no functional need for them. Yeah. So on this, what I did is I did this. Without love, uh, I am nothing. My gift is my, and you could put on here, spiritual gift is of no profit. I am nothing. Love is the greater gift. Spiritual gifts will pass away, but the gift of love abides, right?
Okay, now we could, we could talk about the definitions of abiding and passing away, but I think they're pretty self-explanatory when you looked at them, yes? Now, this was the interesting thing, though. He gives um, a pictorial imagery of what's going on with regards to this present life versus what's going to happen in the eternity, correct? He's, and that's what the contrast is, is what's going on now versus what's going to be, right? And so he gives a couple of, of um, points, and in one of them he's, he talks about knowing in part, and we prophesy in part. Have you guys ever read this verse and wondered why this verse was in here in the middle of all this? This is talking about the gift of love and how, you know, we're nothing without it, how great it is, how it, it with, with love it, you're, you're expressing patience and kindness and um, you're not seeking your own and all these things. So you're doing all these really loving um, affectionate kinds of things, which, by the way, when you are living in that way, the action of love, what are you, who are you expressing? God. Go back to chapter 8, verse 1 with me again. I'm going to take you back to 8.1. Remember, he said here, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, right, in verse 1. And then he says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, what? He is known by him. Isn't that interesting? So now if you think about that in verse 13, if you are known by him in verse 13, what is going to be evident? What is going to be seen in you? Love, right? Love is going to be patient. Love is going to be kind because who is God? God is love. God is, God is, uh, he does not seek his own. He does not uh, take into account a wrong suffered. He does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but he rejoices with the truth. So if all these things are about love are God's qualities that he wants in us, what's, what is it then that he says is if you know God, you're going to, then you are known by him. And what does that mean? I think this next verse, 9 through 12, expresses it. And if you look at it from that perspective, it fits in the flow of thought. Otherwise, you're looking at verses 9 through 12, and what is it that, how does it fit the flow of conversation? What is he saying in 9 through 12? What is his point? Right, so why would he bring up the, the Jesus' coming in the middle of trying to exhort you to love through your spiritual gift? Okay, okay, and, and what he's saying there is right now God is not fully known, right, by us. We're, but how are we expressing God right now? In a, impartial, how? how? What's the imagery? As dimly in a mirror you look, in that same dimness, we are reflecting the love of God through our lives right now. But one day, what's going to happen? The perfect is going to come. We are going to see him face to face. And then what? And then, and (laughs) yay. (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy. No more late hours at the computer. I don't know what I'd do with myself. I'm going to be lost. (laughs) 
But then I will know fully just as I have also been fully known. This is very interesting to me. What I see in this is this. Through our spiritual gifts, the church is to reflect God's love. That's what's being said here, correct? Would you agree with that? Okay. Although dim, right now our gifts are a reflection of his love in this present time. Right? But when the perfect comes, and I believe that is a, a reference to Christ, when Christ comes, we will see him face to face, we will, we will know him fully, and guess what? Perfect love will be known then. I, right now, I'm doing it imperfectly, but one day I'm going to be in the place where I can see what perfect love really is like, and so will the whole church. But temporarily, right now, I am God's love reflected, although dimly, it's my responsibility to understand that's what I am trying to do is reflect love. My spiritual gift is given to me for the purpose of expressing God's love. And as according to chapter 14 says, the whole real purpose is that in the end, people will see the demonstration of my spiritual gift. It will glorify God and people will worship him. They will either come into faith or their faith will be strengthened in some manner or another. So if that's what's being said here, then when he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Why? Because we don't have the full presence of Christ with us. Yes, we don't have the full knowledge of him as we will one day. But then, but when that perfect comes, the partial will be done away with that. Those, those gifts that we are reflecting right now rather poorly, but still yet reflecting them. Those will be done away, and we will be in his presence, and then real love in its true form will be presented and will be known. For right now, you and I, here's a couple of verses I want to take you to. Let's go to 1 John 4, 7 to 13. Someone look that one up. Someone else look up. Now we're going to go into 2 Corinthians. I followed from 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians. There's two, two more verses we're going to look at, and then we'll be all done. Um, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.20, who would like to look that one up for me? Okay, you got 5.20. Who would like to do 2 Corinthians 2.14? Susan's got it. Okay, and I need 1 John 4, 7 to 13. Okay, good. So, Lisa, you do that one for us. Wow, isn't that amazing? Now, did you see that? No one has ever seen God, but if his love is in us, that love is perfected, meaning it's displayed to the world. The world sees that love in us if, in fact, we love God and are living according to that. Okay, so was that through uh, 13? Isn't that amazing? So he's given us his spirit, which is God's love, right? He's given us his spirit of love, faith, hope, and love. Those three things abide, will be with us forever, and every one of us receive that. 
And he says that although none of us have seen him, yet if we're living and operating in love by the Spirit, then that is perfected in us. His love is perfecting us. The world sees his love through us. Those who know God love God. You will know we are Christians by our love is basically what that's saying. Okay, now go to 2 Corinthians, which, by the way, is the flow of thought. Because we're going to go from 1 Corinthians into 2 Corinthians where he's going to continue his message to these same people. Okay, so he's saying about you and I, the purpose for our being here is that we are presently ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador do? He represents the one who sent them, right? So if we're here to represent Christ through the operation of our spiritual gifting, if we're displaying love, then we are being perfected. His love is being perfected in us, and the world is to see it. Although right now it's dimly as through a mirror. But one day it will be more perfected. Now go into 2.14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in accordance with Christ and grants us through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every way. Wow. So there it is. It's manifested through us. Remember we, saw, we said here that it's a manifestation of the Spirit. The purpose of your gift is that it's a manifestation that the Spirit would be seen in you and that the world would recognize it as being from God and that then God would be glorified and worshipped. Isn't that amazing? That's just a basic, big picture of the subject of spiritual gifts. This church was operating not according to love. They were doing things in selfish for selfish profit and gain and they had had lifted one above another. And actually, there's one of these, these statements in here where it says that the gifts are given so that they, uh, where it talks about the, the body parts and that one can't operate without the other. And he says he does it so that there be no division in the body. Do you remember our key verse in chapter 1, verse 10? Go back to 110 and let's, let's close with that one. In 110, he says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Wow. Does that fit nicely with what we just went through? All right. I know it didn't answer them all. Go ahead. 